welcome to Weird Studies, an art and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes and to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. because Paul always had ideas whereas John was uh things had to like marinate for a while and then he'd have like one great idea whereas Paul just it just never ended Uh, you know actually I think this is a situation where the hedgehog versus fox thing works pretty well Paul McCartney was totally a fox constantly having ideas about this that and the third and John was definitely a hedgehog. Yeah. He always had, like, one master idea that would be governing a given situation. Whereas with Paul, he was one of those guys who could say sort of like Marshall McLuhan, and some journalist was bitching about McLuhan's, uh, something about McLuhan's ideas. McLuhan was like, you don't like my ideas? It's okay. I got others. Uh, yeah. and, and, and I always get that feeling with, um, that's, that's like the, that's the Fox thing is, uh, you don't like those ideas. I got others. Yeah, totally. You know? Whereas, whereas if you don't like John's idea, then that, I mean, he doesn't have others. It's like, it's right. all or nothing. That's, he's, it's, that's his idea he's working with. Yeah. You can either accept it or reject it, but he's not going to change it. Yeah. Which is another Another reason that if we were to um, assess or evaluate our relationship in, in, in Beatles terms, where I would fall into the John camp for sure, because I have one idea. <laughs> <laughs> and what is that idea? Um, wow, it, it, it finds endless manifestations, but I just, I just know that it's always the same one idea. I think it has something to do with mystery. Hmm. Yeah, I wrote a, a philosophical paper, quote unquote, when I was 15. Called Mysteriosophy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that, I've lost it, but I think nice. that that pretty much contained everything that I've ever thought ever since. <laughs> Seriously. You know, I think it was yeah. Ber- Bergson said that every philosopher is motivated by one intuition. I'm not calling myself a philosopher. I'm just saying if even philosophers only have one intuition, then that probably, probably is the same for me too. You know, like just... You just yeah. get this one insight, and then you just there are no ways. There's and no way to verbalizing it. Yeah, there's there's no way to translate it. There's no way to because it's an intuition. It's prelingual, so you have to constantly find new ways of reiterating the same thing. You know, I think there's something to that. It's sort of like the wish that you take into the room with you in the zone. Uh, yeah, it's the, it's the thing of which you can know nothing. There are times where I get a presentment, a feeling, almost like a prickling in the skin that the ideas that I worked on for DIG, like the earlier part of my career, the ideas I've been working on since then, even the kinds of things I was working on when I was a pianist, when they weren't ideas, at least verbalizable ideas, but just purely musical ones, I get this sense that they're all coming out of some common intuition. I've had that feeling very strongly, but I could never in a million years articulate what that is. Yeah. 
Yeah. And here's a th- here's a thought. Maybe that that something is very close to what we mean by soul. Oh, most definitely. Or you know, it's funny because we're today we're talking about William Burroughs. Uh, no, we're actually we're talking about Cronenberg's film Naked Lunch. Naked Lunch. His adaptation of William Burroughs's fantastic, wonderful masterpiece, Naked Lunch. Cronenberg opens his film with two epigraphs. The first is from Hassan Isaba, the leader of the assassins in the Middle Ages. Nothing is true. Everything's permitted. The second one is a quote from Naked Lunch. He says, hustlers of the world, there is one mark you cannot beat, the mark inside. And I've always wondered what that meant, but I've always chosen to interpret it to mean the mark inside is that one part of you that that is completely unique, that almost transcends the world. It can't be beaten. But of course, the line is ambiguous because it could also mean there's one mark you need to, you know, you can't beat this one. You got to find the mark inside. But either way, the mark inside seems to point to something about us that is completely unique and that might coincide with that deepest intuition that you're talking about or that I mentioned before. This like this one insight that in fact is our souls. Maybe our soul isn't an object so much as an insight or an inroad or a new mode of being, right? A new way to be in the world. I like that idea. Then from that point of view, the mark inside is that thing I was talking about a moment ago, that kind of mysterious inner consistency from which yeah that's what i'm saying all of my ideas and creative intuitions have emerged then the question what does it mean to beat that one way what does that line mean and one way to interpret it or something that occurs to me is that you might try to get outside of yourself and you might have all kinds of reasons why you might want to get outside of yourself You know, when you become aware of your own style, when you become aware that you have a style, not only like a style as a writer or a style as a pianist, but just a style as a person, it's almost like becoming aware of your own stink, (laughs) like your own body odor. (laughs) And, And the mere existence of it can be intolerable. Right. There's a line from a story that I've otherwise forgotten almost everything about, an early short story by David Foster Wallace. And he has a character in it who hates defecating. Right. And he does anything he can to put off the moment where he has to go to the bathroom. And the reason is because he hates being an organism. That Mm. is to say, being an ism of his organs. Right. Like, he just, it's like this special kind of nausea that comes from just being aware of an individuality that radiates from within you, regardless of what you try to do. You can mask it. If we go with the body odor analogy, you can mask it through various perfumes and deodorants, but you can't actually get rid of it. Yeah, and there's that moment where you become aware of that certain ineffable something. I think the mentally healthy approach would be to celebrate and love that. But of course, there's nothing healthy about any of us in modernity, right? So I think the first instinct is loathing. You become aware of this. It feels like a stink on you, especially if you're the kind of modernist intellectual for whom cliche and repetition is absolutely anathema. 
where the idea of having a signature style is more likely to be seen as a impediment or a limitation than what I actually think it is, which is something that sets you free. But all of these thoughts you might entertain as a creative artist, and you might wish to transcend that ineffable something. You know, the way we tend to talk about these kinds of the sort of soul stuff is generally in a celebratory or at least a positive way. But it seems to me that most moderns probably hate the very idea of possessing such a soul, because then the soul would possess you. You could be like that character in that David Foster Wallace novel, merely an ism of your organs or an ism of your soul. And so that's the mark you can't beat because, like I said, you can cover it up, but ultimately it's kind of who you are. You're never going to be able to run away from it any more than you can run from your shadow. Well, yeah, you, we could translate the line and say something like, there's one kind of slavery you can't abolish, the slavery to yourself. <laughs> Deleuze and Guattari and uh, Anti-Oedipus talk about this um, aversion to defecation. And also, there's a part where they, they're talking about sadomasochism. And they describe a character that gets his asshole sewn shut in his mouth. And his, oh, you know, yeah, basically, yeah. And the idea is to become a body without organs, right? There's an, an opposite interpretation, contrary to what you just proposed, which I think was also valid, that in order to become an individual, to become a soul, is, is to make yourself, to a certain extent, a body without organs, to transcend all the limitations of organism that limit your, just your pure creative act of becoming in the world and that you you somehow have to incorporate the organic part of you into that process but it begins as a limitation you know like that you're you're a slave to the organism that you are and as human beings we feel that we're more than organisms and then whenever we get sick or we get annoyed with all like i always get annoyed with how many like all these little objects around me that get in my way and i always feel like the world is just getting in the way right Right. It's like, if I could just get out of this organic condition, I would be able to just be this pure force of creation. You know, I could just like, (laughs) but that's impossible. So whatever individuation we're going to enact in our lives has to incorporate those limitations and that organic reality into itself or else it's a doomed proposition. This is an interesting way to to get into Burroughs, but we should probably step back a little bit and talk about the topic in more general terms like what are we talking about today why do we choose this film you proposed it so why don't you tell me what it is about this movie naked lunch that attracts you that interests you um so why did i say i wanted to do this this is a movie that i saw when it first came out uh in 1991 if memory serves and i saw it in a nearly empty movie theater with a couple of profoundly puzzled friends of mine (laughs) and not saying like I understood what the hell I was seeing either but you know I didn't have really much of a context for it and the whole thing unfolded like a dream it was a little bit like seeing Eraserhead which is tonally and formally very different film but at the same time the feeling of capturing something elusive and rare and beautiful. There's a kind of nostalgia for, there should be a name for nostalgia for things that you've never personally experienced. 
I had this strong attraction to the world, particularly the world we see right at the beginning, that shabby, lost New York City world of luncheonettes, cold water flats with peeling, water-streaked wallpaper and shabby curtains and William Lee's incongruously perfectly tailored suits. I had this feeling very strongly in a film that is almost unique in the fluidity with which it crosses and recrosses boundaries between consensus reality and irreality. Yeah. You know, like, not only is this a world that I never experienced, it's a world nobody has experienced or ever could experience, except in the film, Naked Lunch. And yet it, it, that was a world that I simultaneously wanted nothing more than to inhabit it, and also inhabiting it would be like my worst nightmare right i don't know it's a zone in that sense yeah well and re-watching it last night i was like oh shit like <laughs> all of the stuff where you and i have been talking about zones and for new listeners this is a call back to our episodes on andre tarkovsky's film stalker where we theorize the concept of the zone um watching Naked Lunch last night, I realized like, oh, this is a film about zones in exactly the way that you and I have been sort of theorizing the concept. Yeah, absolutely. On a very concrete, practical level, it's a film about how to get in the zone if you're going to write something. <laughs> like yeah. that expression, yeah. I'm in the zone. It's a film in which a writer is tasked with producing a document with creating something and for him drugs and madness and hallucination become the instruments by which he empowers himself to fulfill this act of creation we should just give a little bit of context here william burroughs wrote a book published in the 50s naked lunch which is basically a strange, surreal collection of writings that do cohere as a whole. So I do. I would argue that it is very much a cohesive whole, a novel, that he wrote while he was in the throes of heroin addiction, basically in the depths of it, living in Tangiers. A scandalous book, one of those famous court cases, you know, it was accused of being immoral, pornographic, obscene, etc., and it quickly, of course, became a cult classic. And then Cronenberg decided to adapt it. But of course, the book in itself is not adaptable to the screen. It would be a nine-hour film, and it would be unwatchable for all kinds of reasons. It would be censored everywhere. <laughs> There's just no way to translate this particular book into a film. So what Cronenberg did was he basically made a film that's the origin story of Naked Lunch. It's basically a film about William Burroughs' ordeal and his efforts to create Naked Lunch. And Interzone, which is a place in the book, in Cronenberg's adaptation, Interzone becomes the place that Burroughs needs to go to write Naked Lunch. So it's, it's a film about how Naked Lunch was written. And he draws a lot on Burroughs' life. For instance, Burroughs famously killed his wife by accident during a, a William Tell routine where she put a wine glass on her head and he tried to shoot it off her head while he was living. This is when they were living in Mexico City and he shot her in the forehead and this horrible tragedy haunted him for the rest of his life. And basically he said on a few occasions that he would never have become a writer if that hadn't happened. 
and also that he was writing to try to expiate the sin that he had committed. So Cronenberg puts that right at the beginning of the film. And after that, the, the main character, who's a stand-in for Burroughs, and this is a character from Burroughs's fiction, Burroughs' alter ego in his novels was William Lee. And so Bill Lee in the film then immigrates to Tangiers and then becomes and becomes addicted to a series of fictional drugs. And then we kind of follow him in this descent into hell where he tries to write his way out. He tries to write his way out of hell. And that's that's basically what happened to William Burroughs. You won't find that in Naked Lunch, the book at all. It's just not there. So it's a very strange film. So for me, you can't talk about the film Naked Lunch without talking about William Burroughs. And also Cronenberg brings in his particular sensibilities and transforms the story in, in interesting ways, or he brings out interesting elements from it. Although I do think that in the end, having watched it last night, I, I do feel that it's almost like a piece of fan fiction. I mean, mm. of all of Cronenberg's films, I think it's the least idiosyncratic. It's the one that most adheres to the, the source material that he's working from. And I do believe that the presence of Burroughs is so strong in the film that I can't see it as a Cronenberg film. I see it as a collaboration. Mm. Hmm. But uh, so this is just by way of providing some context about what we're talking about, because it's not easy to talk about Naked Lunch, the film, without also talking about Naked Lunch, the book, and without also talking about William Burroughs, the man. It's also the film is kind of a like a remix or pastiche or potpourri of Burroughsiana. I mean, there are some things like what Burroughs called routines yeah, which in, in Naked Lunch, they're just sort of like jags of a page or two where he goes off on some kind of concept or a notion, like the, the asshole that could talk, which we get, I think, pretty much complete in the film. The framing device there is that there's this louche gay man that lives in Interzone, played by Julian Sands, who is sort of flirting a little bit with William Lee. And Lee plays it cool by constantly putting this character, Yves Cloquet, putting him off with a series of surreal anecdotes, mm -hmm. and one of which is the asshole that could talk. So, you know, there's this way that Cronenberg is finding narrative pretexts to bring back some of these routines, pretty much, you know, the whole routine. But then you'll get individual lines that are kind of remixed into narrative scenes so i think it's in junkie he talks about like a dispatcher at a i guess it's in like an exterminator company who's doing a bit like a kind of a comic bit with someone else where he says in a kind of a broad borscht belt accent you want i should spit in your face yeah. you want you want and uh, I'm sorry, I apologize to all the listeners at home hearing my horrible impression of somebody doing a horrible impression of a Borscht Belt comic. But that line comes back in Naked Lunch, but in the context of like Bill Lee's run out of bug powder, the stuff uses to kill roaches. And the reason he's run out of bug powder is his wife, Joan, has been injecting it as a drug. Yeah, because um, the, the film begins in New York and in the film, Bill Lee is working as an exterminator. And this is actual, this is based on fact. William Burroughs, while he was living in Chicago, did work as an exterminator for some time. So he starts with that. And the whole conceit of the film at the beginning is that 
Bill and his wife, Joan, become addicted to the bug powder that Bill is using in his extermination practice, in his work. Right. A, dr- a drug, needless to say, that doesn't really exist. No. And so when he goes to his supervisor to ask for more bug powder, you get the, you want I should spit in your face line. That's recontextualized. It means something different. There's lots of things like that. Like one of my favorite Burroughs lines, fuck them all, squares on both sides. I am the only complete man in the industry which is a line from Naked Lunch, turns up as an angry thing that Bill Lee is muttering to himself when he realizes that the two sides of some shadowy operation in Interzone are both trying to play him. Again, narrative contexts generated for lines that have a kind of radioactive power all on their own. And I think this has led some people to criticize the film version Naked Lunch not only because it's not a version of Naked Lunch, it's a, a kind of a fantasia of elements, not only from Naked Lunch, but from William Burroughs's life and some of his other early works. But I think a lot of people just don't like the fact that there's story in it. There is a narrative, and, yeah. the, na- and the narrative is used to anchor what are otherwise these disconnected shards of image that come out of Burroughs's writing. That doesn't bother me because I'm not a Burroughs hardcore by any means. If I was, if I felt that the uh, lack of narrative tethering for some of these things, if I thought that that was a really important aesthetic principle to preserve in the film, then I suppose I would get grumpy about it. But I don't care, and so I don't. I mean, he did preserve the kind of surreal stream of consciousness or the kind of like Burroughs' pension for non sequiturs and discontinuity and disjunction. He did preserve that in the script, you feel that, but of course he has a very strong, solid narrative plot in place because Cronenberg's goal wasn't to make the film that William Burroughs would have made if he'd been a filmmaker. Cronenberg's goal, I think, is to paint a portrait of William Burroughs <laughs> I mean, that's, yes. and, as yeah. a man in the world. And this is something I felt watching the film. Like Cronenberg is not a, a, was never a junkie. Cronenberg isn't gay. So one of the two defining kind of gestures, let's call them that, that William Burroughs as an artist performs homosexuality and drug addiction. Like he just basically just puts it out there. They're part of his persona from the start. No effort, no attempt to hide it. So Cronenberg is looking in from the outside and you get the sense that it's a study of Burroughs and of Burroughs's universe. It's kind of, um, I get this feeling watching the film that Cronenberg is a bit of, a, in the good sense of the word, he's a tourist in Interzone. He's, he's trying to make sense of it. He's trying to organize it in a way that he can understand it. But Burroughs is an insider. Burroughs is mm. Interzone. And that's why I really see the film as an homage or a tribute. The film has strengths on its own, and those strengths are basically the strengths that every Cronenberg film has this uh, what's been called body horror, this subversion of biological continuity, (laughs) this subversion of the coherence of the human organism. This is something I think attracted Cronenberg to Burroughs' work and something that Cronenberg explores in many of his films. It's certainly present in this. And then Cronenberg takes drug addiction and, and even homosexuality, let's be honest, and reframes them in the context of this type of body horror that kind of defines his style. Um, And that's interesting. 
truth be told, I'm a huge Burroughs fan. I've read most of his books. And so for me, watching the film has always been the context of my my love for William Burroughs. I can never watch the film as a thing in itself. Like it, to, for me, it was always a kind of a, an extrusion or concrescence of of the Burroughs phenomenon. Mm. And I'm a diehard fan of, of William Burroughs and every, I think he's probably one of the top three or four Western artists of the 20th century. I think that Naked Lunch is probably the most beautifully written novel I've ever read. So that's where I'm coming from. So I, I, I keep getting like magnetically pulled back towards the book and it's going to be a struggle for me to like keep things in focus. So where we begin, it's 1952, I think, in New York City. And the first thing we see is a door to some shabby tenement apartment with a hat-wearing silhouette looming up on the door. And this is our introduction to William Lee, played amazingly by Peter Weller, probably best known as Murphy in Robocop. And he has a couple of things going for him. Number one, he, he sort of looks like a human greyhound. He's sort of whip thin and sallow and somewhat insectile in appearance, which is extremely appropriate for Naked Lunch. He has these piercing blue eyes that give him a look of preternatural intelligence and coldness. Yeah. But in any event, to get back to the plot, so Burroughs slash Lee shows up at an apartment and he's an exterminator. He runs out of bug powder while on the job has a hassle with his boss who won't give him any more, goes home, discovers that his wife, Joan, has been shooting up his bug powder. She's addicted to a drug that doesn't really exist. However, this doesn't phase him. And this is only the first of many warps in reality where things are simultaneously one thing and another. And you get a feeling that there's some consensus reality in which... They're actually doing drugs. They're actually getting high. You can't tell if bug powder is a sort of a metaphor for something, a, a figure for a drug, or if it's actually meant to be literally something that people take in the fictional world of this film. And this is just the first taste of what becomes like a kind of wall-to-wall mind fuckery of this film, mm. where you're constantly shifting between levels of reality and hallucination without those levels ever being firmly distinguished from one another. And we are given a guideline at the beginning. One of uh, the first thing William Burroughs tells his friends, Hank and Martin, who are basically Ginsburg and Kerouac in the film, first thing he tells them, his key piece of advice to them is exterminate all rational thought. So that can be seen as a wink, a winking advice to the viewer to stop trying to make sense of things and just get a, yes. just go with it. Or you could just see it as the sort of thing that an exterminator would say. What am I supposed to do with rational thought? Probably exterminate it. Well, I mean, yeah. Insect intelligence is the most rational form of intelligence. I mean, <laughs> but seriously, rationality finds, finds its absolute consummation in, in, in an ant colony. Yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's true. So anyways. Anyway, just to continue the through line of the plot. So 
Bill Lee and his wife Joan have, you know, problems, of which addiction is only one of many. After catching his wife in flagrante delicto with Hank, an event that seems to mean almost nothing to him. He doesn't seem to care. In fact, there's this great line where his wife comes in on him and says, well, Hank went home. And Bill Lee says, with that completely flat intonation, not before he came, I hope. (laughs) (laughs) And then he shoots her. And it's not quite clear whether he shoots her out of some sort of buried homicidal rage at being cuckolded in this fashion or what. In fact, the whole thing, there's no setup to it. He just sort of says matter-of-factly with the same kind of blank and affectless way that he says everything in this film. It looks like it's something like it looks like it's time for our William Tell routine. And Joan just wordlessly assents, takes a drinking glass, puts it on her head, and stares at him while he aims an automatic pistol, fires, and, of course, shoots her in the head. And from there, he runs off. He runs away to Interzone. Well, he's he, he's employed by an intelligence organization, right? Oh, that's yeah, how, I forgot yeah, about that. That's why he goes to Interzone. So the first major moment that reality goes sideways in this film is that he's brought into a police station by a couple of plainclothes detectives who are investigating him for drugs. And he's, you know, sort of not giving anything away. And they're like, hmm, well, there's somebody we think you should talk to. And they bring in this giant insect about the size of a typewriter. Like a beetle. Yeah. Yeah, it looks like a beetle. And it starts talking to him through this puckered, fleshy hole in its back under its folded wings that looks exactly like a human anus. A nod to, you know, the talking asshole bit, I suppose. But Mm -hmm. also it's just sort of like such a great Cronenberg thing to show us, not only tell us about an asshole that talks, but to show us the meaty, puckered, orifice of this insectile asshole talking to us and always and it's interesting a little detail there are a number of different monsters that appear in this film and all of them have the same voice yeah the voice notice that yeah they're all the voice canadian actor yeah it's the voice of uh i know i have his name here peter beretsky i think yeah i love that actor william lee meets him on the subway at the beginning he's another exterminator who gives him some advice how to draw you know how to get off the bug powder and then so when william lee begins to hallucinate his controller because he imagines himself as a secret agent that's part of this organization it's a part of some kind of plot that's never spelled out and makes no sense well like i've seen this movie so many times and every time i see it like okay this time i'm going to try and figure out the conspiracy that William Lee finds himself dragged into. And I've come to the conclusion it just makes no sense and isn't supposed to. Well, at the end, it is the mugwump at the end. So another monster who at the end does reveal to William Lee that the goal is to uh, snag or catch Dr. Benway. And Dr. Benway is behind the whole drug pyramid, the whole pyramid scheme of drug addiction and treatment. And then William Lee finds those mugwumps tied up and being... uh, used to to uh, extract this drug anyways we'll, we'll get there so that seems to be like the, the kind of conspiracy but it yeah it doesn't feel like something that was brewing all it feels like something that was cobbled together at the end of the film to give it some closure 
but it doesn't feel like the whole film was written with that in mind. Like it doesn't. No. Yeah. It's more like a, there's a real dream quality to the film itself. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. The way in dreams, you sometimes find yourself in adventures that on the inside of the dream, there is perhaps an outcome, maybe a revelation at the end that blows your mind inside the dream where it all makes sense. All the pieces come together and you wake up and you're like, that didn't make any fucking sense. Yeah. That's always how I feel. Like there's something about, there's something captivating about the logic of this sort of double and triple agents, most of them insectoid typewriters. Yeah. Or these lizardy mugwumps. But, you know, while I'm watching the film, it's captivating. Whenever I try to figure out, yeah, but is he supposed to get orders from Benway? Is he supposed to catch Benway? What is he supposed to do with Benway if he gets him? The moment I start asking those questions, the plot just completely falls apart. And I suspect it's supposed to. This is not a born film. <laughs> no, it is it's not. not a film. It's, yeah. it's like you dreaming a born film. Exactly. Precisely. Yeah. So anyway, he gets in touch with his insect controller, which tells him to murder his wife, Joan. And even though he smashes this bug with his shoe and runs out, escapes the precinct house, he does exactly what his control tells him to do. And as I say, it's almost completely, it just seems arbitrary. There doesn't seem to be any motivation. They just start doing their William Tell routine and then she's dead. Unless you choose to interpret the film in such a way that the insects, the various insects, are basically just Burroughs's repressed feelings uh, talking yeah. to him. Yeah. Uh, in which case, the figure of Peter Weller's character is just one part of a bigger character that is the whole film. And the whole film yes. is kind of the psyche of one man kind of thing. Yeah. That's an interpretation that uh, imposes itself effortlessly right. as you're watching this. That the architecture of Interzone itself is Burroughs. Right. The people he meets, they're all Burroughs. The film is almost like an exploded schematic of the consciousness of this tormented writer. Right. There's a strong clue that would support that interpretation when Burroughs walks into his apartment and finds Hank having sex with his wife, Joan. The Ginsburg character, Martin, is reading what seems to be one of his own poems, but in fact, it's an excerpt from Naked Lunch. So Ginsburg is reading his work and his work turns out to be a passage from Naked Lunch, which indicates very concretely that the Ginsburg character in the film is just another aspect of Burroughs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, more suggestions of this. When about two-thirds of the way through the film, Burroughs goes on a, a huge sort of drug and booze bender and ends up asleep in a ditch where Hank and Martin find him. And they are showing him the pages that he has been sending them. I mean, from what Bill rem understands, he's been sending reports, right? He's involved in some kind of obscure conspiracy, and his controller has told him that he is to buy a typewriter and file reports, and he has been dutifully doing this. But it turns out when he ends up snapping back into New York reality when his friends find him, he's been sending them his reports, but when they show him the pages of his reports, he doesn't remember them. Yeah. He's like, I didn't write any of this stuff. And he starts immediately theorizing that this is a part of some conspiracy, somebody who is pretending to be him. Some con, he says, yeah. Yeah, some con. Somebody's pretending to be him and sending these pages. 
That's all true, by and, the way. That's all that all happened. Ginsburg and Kerouac. Really? Yeah, they're the ones who went to Tangier, if I remember correctly. They went over there, and they found him in a you know, like Burroughs was basically as deep in the junk as you could get. He'd spend days just staring at his big toe. It was, you know, he was like at that stage. And they found him and they found his apartment strewn, or at least this is the romantic version, found his apartment strewn with these pages. And they started to read them and they're like, holy shit, this is amazing. And they collated, they, they put together the book with him. And Burroughs did say that he had no memory of writing any of it. Later on, he said, no, I do have a memory of it, but I have no emotional, no affective memory. I remember mechanically the process of writing it, like you'd watch a, an old film reel but I don't remember any affective investment in it. I just remember Which is a kind of, you know, and whether it's the strong form, like someone else wrote these pages that just happened to be by me, or the weak version of it, which is I have no affective context for it. I just remember the mechanical business of depressing keys at the typewriter. Mm -hmm. Either way, that hints strongly at a kind of dissociative disorder of a sort that people who are spending much of their life on drugs often feel, and of, of course there are DSM-5 categorizations of like disassociative personality disorder. But getting back to the idea that the whole film is almost like an exploded schema of William Burroughs slash William Lee's mind, that's a neat wrinkle or a neat way of kind of turning that idea is that Burroughs, much like all of us, has these different and loosely, if at all, coordinated parts of himself. And those parts don't necessarily all talk to one another. Right. This is true of all of us, actually, but I think those kinds of inner splits, those kinds of splits and dissociations become more pronounced in organic disorders of the brain or induced disorders of the brain through drugs. Right, right. Or or, or induced, the induced clarity. I mean... uh, have you read Thomas De Quincey? Um, no. Confessions of an Opium Eater? There's this nope. part where I don't remember it very clearly. There's this part where he basically says that opium does not make you nuts. Opium makes you extremely, radically sane. And that's the high is opium. And obviously heroin is a derivative of opium. Uh, and what it does is it dulls down the affective functions so that only the majestic intellect reigns overall so you can see all the dissociations that are part of you as a person you can see them they were there all along they're not so much pronounced as they become apparent to you and certainly that would be what burroughs says burroughs always said that junk gives you crystal clear vision into the workings of the mind and in fact naked lunch is very much a work of kind of psychology or sociology it tries to break down some of the basic algorithms of modern society. What I think Burroughs believed is that junk enabled him to see this. And that puts him in the same tradition as De Quincey. Uh, these are apologists of drugs. At the same time as Burroughs was, was very clear about the dangers of heroin, he never hesitated to point out the lucidity it affords one, the clarity of vision that it provides. But anyways, you know, yeah. I'm going to maybe... I'm realizing that my goal of summarizing the plot of Naked Lunch, that was a bad idea. No, I, I think, think it was a good point, idea. I think I think our, our, our listeners at this point have enough yeah. to go on for the plot. So I'm going to abandon the attempt at coming up with any comprehensive plot summary. Well, let's just let's a, just finish it in one paragraph. Like, you know, so so basically after Burroughs kills his wife 
and is enlisted in this um, hallucinatory intelligence organization. He fancies himself a secret agent on a mission, writing these reports. He goes to Interzone, which is basically Tangiers transmuted into this like surreal dimension. It's a mixture of Tangiers and, uh, and New York. And he then meets a bunch of characters. Some of them are from Naked Lunch. Some of them are actually from the real historical Tangier of the time. For example, Paul Bowles and Jane Bowles make an appearance as Tom and uh, Jane Frost. And then there are various characters that are drawn from from history from, from that time. And then he just spends the rest of the film struggling with drugs and trying to finish his report. And at the end, he uncovers a plot that involves a sinister physician named Dr. Benway. And after that, he escapes Interzone with Jane Frost, a woman he met in Tangiers, who's actually a simulacrum or a kind of reincarnation of his dead wife, Joan. And at the end, he tries to get into a country called Anexia, and that country is from Naked Lunch. And at the border, he's asked to show his identity. He shows a pen, and that enables him to enter the country. But then he also has to prove himself one last time before he's allowed to escape Interzone and enter Anexia. He has to prove himself as a writer. As a writer, he kills his wife again. He kills Jane. And so he has to repeat the sin that is at the kind of the root, the kind of uh, driving force of his creative endeavor. Uh, okay. Okay. So film Very is good. summarized. Thank, thank you. Yeah. I have trouble with the whole brevity thing. So I'm glad you were able to succinctly summarize that. And now with that out of the way, I can go off on the tangent that I've been wanting to get off on, namely about drugs and their effects and Burroughs slash De Quincey's position that heroin is a drug or opiates uh, actually make you saner in the sense that you have this cool, rational, discriminating intellect that is floating above all your other functions and able to calmly assess them. I will say uh, in 2016, I smashed my leg in a grisly fashion, like both the large and small bones of my leg were broken clean through. At one point, they needed to splint my leg. And they knew. They were like, this is going to hurt bad. And they were like, we're going to give you four large shots of diluted, intravenous shots of diluted in an hour. So timed out at 15-minute intervals. And this is the most high I have ever been in my life. This is like very refined pharmaceutical-grade diluted, which is a kind of pharmaceutical heroin. Right. And I have to say, I don't know what the hell Burroughs and De Quincey are talking about. Nothing in my experience of that remotely resembled that idea of, like, clarity. Furthest thing from that, which makes me think, not that they're lying, but that they're on the heroin wavelength or they're, they're on the opium wavelength there's a set of books by Dale Pendle called Pharmacopoeia. I can't remember actually the title. It's a kind of alchemist's tour of what he calls power plants, different plants that human beings use to get high. And he treats them as almost like autonomous plant intelligences. Like each plant has its own kind of cognitive signature. I kind of buy that. I like that idea. Oh, I, I, I'm behind that 100%. Yeah. And it seems... Just based on my own experience. And it seems yeah. to me that... I think we once talked about this in an unrecorded conversation. I once had a student who drove the IU drunk bus. 
and ended up getting in a lot of conversations with students who, it turns out, people will say anything to a bus driver. And so they were talking all about their drug use, like went into very great detail. And my student came up with the idea that I was very, which I'm very taken by, which is that different individuals, it's, I mean, this is maybe obvious that drugs work differently for different individuals. And some people are just on a certain drug's wavelength. So if you think of, you know, power plants as having these different kind of souls or spirits, some people are just on that spiritual wavelength with heroin or with cannabis or cocaine or whatever. And that, to some extent, determines what their drug-taking life is going to look like. But then what I found very interesting was the idea that entire societies and epochs and periods of time also can be more on the wavelength of this drug or that drug. So you think of like the enormous popularity of LSD in the late 60s. And something that uh, we talked about, I believe, is that DMT, which is sort of the new hotness in psychedelic studies, people talk about DMT all the time. Now, DMT was actually available at the same time as LSD, but nobody took it. Nobody was remotely interested in DMT. Well, they people tried it, but they took, didn't stick with it. People yeah. tried it, but nobody saw the point. Nobody it was too found fast. Any, yeah, nobody found any kind of promise in it. Yeah. Whereas LSD, um, I don't know. I speak under correction here because I've actually never done acid, and so I don't really know what I'm talking about. But my understanding is that, you know, acid has its own peculiar wavelength, and there's this period of time, late 60s, where people are on that particular wavelength. Not a drug's wavelength generally, not psychedelic drugs generally, no. just LSD. Yeah. And, you know, my student was telling me, this is about 10 years ago, what he saw was that amphetamines, particularly the pharmacologically refined amphetamines that are used to stimulate attention, things that people give to patients with attention deficit disorder. Uh, I'm trying to remember their proper names now because I've never taken any of them, but I, so I don't know that much about them. No. Yeah, fuck it. I can't remember. Anyway, his point was that students seem to embrace a culture collectively that was on the attention drug wavelength, that this is an attention culture. These are kids who have been raised like veal calves in a kind of testing and standards-oriented educational system. And the proper mode of behavior is one in which you can turn on and off attention, like a light switch. So from which point of view, speedy drugs, but also these very particular tailored speedy drugs are just on this kind of collective wavelength. Yeah, anyway, that makes sense. Uh, all of this is to say, though, that like I really believe in drug wavelengths, and I believe that when Burroughs talks about heroin, he's talking about an experience that I can never have just because well, I, may, I'm not on that wavelength. Well, yeah, but you can get on a wavelength. like Because drugs involve... A drug is always... There's always a relationship, and you need to learn how to use a drug. I think the Quincy or Burroughs would respond by saying, yeah, well, you probably took way too much to begin with. Uh, you need to, there's a way, you need to master that. You need to, you need to be able to ride it. Ride the snake, as Jim Morrison would say, you know? And you need to learn how to use, how to interpret the semiotics of a drug world, right? And then you 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 achieve a kind of mastery of it. Um, there's a that's interesting. At the end of Naked Lunch, um, there's an, an appendix at the end of the one of the editions I have 
he calls himself anyways he calls himself a master addict and i love that term a master addict huh. and he it's basically a compendium of various drugs and what they do and it's it's a it's a document he wrote for uh, i think for a doctor in, in britain that he was working with he's basically saying this is my field work this is what i've discovered about these drugs this is how they work i'm a master addict and i like that idea i think there's truth to it there's a lot of definitely there it's true that each drug has a wavelength and each drug comes with its own aesthetic its own software in a sense that's really interesting yeah and i think that there's a process by which one like i would take de quincey and burrows i I mean i'm not a a heroin addict and i've never taken heroin but i'll take their word for it i mean I'll, i'll listen to what they have to say about it maybe they're completely insane but then if we go that route then we have to account for the precise dissection of society and civilization that constitutes naked lunch and it's a ridiculously insightful book. It predicted AIDS. It predicted crack. It predicted liposuction. I mean, these are just things that in Naked Lunch that he just hallucinates. He just writes about. And he not, not only does he just, he doesn't just describe these phenomena. He actually describes the logic behind them and how they arose and what their purpose is. It's a deep, deep investigation of the deepest algorithmic stratum of our society, almost like the kind of like the master code behind all of these pyramid schemes that make up modern capitalist society. And junk in the book becomes a metaphor for all forms of addiction, all forms of obsession, all those things that are sold to you under the banner of self-fulfillment that in fact just ensnare and trap you and a process of control, a process by which you are vampirized and you are divorced from yourself. The genius of Naked Lunch, I'm not saying that heroin makes you a genius. I mean, Burroughs was obviously a very, very intelligent dude, but he did write his best book while high on heroin. Mm. So, so I don't know. It's, these things are so mysterious. Yeah. So here's a thought. I remember one of the things he says about drugs is something that I... I find slightly difficult to believe. He says about cannabis, that cannabis is very useful for a writer, but that once you learn what cognitive changes cannabis wreaks on your mind, once you figure out what those are, you can just kind of get in that space without Mm -hmm. needing to get high. Yeah. So at least with cannabis, he was suggesting that whatever that signature or that wavelength is, you can kind of will yourself into it as a writer, like it becomes an available zone. Okay, so here's a thought. From that point of view, then, the wavelength is occupied by the drug, but you don't necessarily need the drug to get on that wavelength. So here's a question. Do you think it would be possible to get on the heroin wavelength by reading Naked Lunch without ever actually having taken heroin? I think to a certain extent, yeah, in the way that Cronenberg does. I think Cronenberg goes some ways into that. But I think you can feel at some point, this gets to a key notion here that's very present in the film. The idea that the artist is by nature a criminal. This is something that Cronenberg really believes. He recently gave a commencement speech, I think, in Toronto, where he invited these students. It was a, it was a OCAD, I think, Ontario College of Art and Design. Uh, He basically told these students that art is by nature crime in the sense that art is always a subversion 
of the sublimation that is civilization. It's a return to the basic instincts that underlie the process of civilization. In a sense, it's always a transgressive act to create a work of art. De Quincey, in his book, Confessions of an Opium Meter, I, th- I don't know if it's in that book or something else, but he, I, one, in one text that he wrote, he compares the criminal to the artist and basically says the, the most exquisite form of art is crime. There's a secret allegiance between or alliance between the criminal and the artist. And this is something that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle takes up with Moriarty, who is an artist criminal, right? That crime at its most refined is a kind of ex- aesthetic endeavor. You can see that in Hitler and Marquis de Sade. This is an, a romantic idea that's very strong throughout the 19th, 20th centuries. And obviously very strong, it still has validity for Cronenberg today. And I think that there's something to be said for having had an experience. I don't think you could become a junkie by reading books written by junkies. Obviously, you can't, you can't, you can't enter that wavelength. I don't think so. You can see the wavelength and you might be able to imitate it. But it's the, the difference between imitation and initiation is, is, I mean, maybe some people are just born on that wavelength and just, they just inhabit it. So, but I don't know if you can get there. But I do think that once you've experienced a drug and you, enough, and you know, you kind of see how it shapes the world and how it works, then you can access it whenever you want. Or at least there's a way to get yourself there, to get back there. Hmm. Um, and I admire artists who, this is one of the things I was feeling yesterday watching the film, like watching Cronenberg kind of like make a film about drug use and he didn't use real drugs, I think partly because he didn't have any experience with them. So he wanted to invent fictional drugs that were more, he felt more, um, qualified to develop and invent and, and, and design where, and an artist like Burroughs who actually descended into hell in order to create his work. I admire artists who are willing to damn themselves for their work. <laughs> I have to say, <laughs> there's something about that that I find, uh, I mean, I'm deep in that right now. I'm doing a lot of research on, on the decadent movement. And I think that was the, the keynote of romanticism and, and decadence in particular was that the artist is willing to, quote unquote, sin in the name of finding some kind of beauty, some kind of truth in this world. So... And I think that Burroughs is very much in that tradition. I think that to some extent, some things need to be experienced to, in order to be written properly. get back to that David Cronenberg commencement address. This was published in the Toronto Globe and Mail on June 22nd, 2018. And the version published in the Globe is adapted from the speech he gave for getting an honorary degree at OCAD. And he's talking about the various structures of repression and containment that civilization always tends to enact upon art. He's talking about the ways that people think about art as a safe expression of sublimated 
erotic or like antisocial energies. And then he asks, but is it contained? In other words, art. Is art ever truly contained? Is it ever safe? Art is not a toy, a fashion statement, a decoration. Art is inherently disruptive. Art is dangerous. It can explode in your face. Not that art can be a crime. Art must be a crime. In my formulation, there is a need for art to be under the radar, criminal, subliminal, constant as the society above it changes. Art is notes from underground. That is the strategy of criminal art. And he goes on to say, is the artist a complete anarchist having no respect for society and the law? No, not at all. The philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, commenting on the thief and playwright Jean Genet via Marx, said, quote, our future burglar starts by learning absolute respect for property. Must artists understand that they are criminals? To do that, they must understand the law, the conventions of social discourse. They must understand what is criminal. So from a certain point of view, this is all pretty commonplace sentiment. This is the mythos of the outlaw artist, which has been beloved by countercultural rebels and their various spokespersons uh, since the 1940s. Uh, it would be very easy for me to uh, explain away this statement as a belated expression of a by now fossilized beat generation ethos, something that has long since completed its migration into the academy, into uh, the official culture of this country. I think there's actually some truth to that. I think that's part of what's going on. Let me ask you a question, JF. How do you interpret this idea that art is and must be a crime? That's what my book was about. So I, I'm drinking at that Kool-Aid fountain very oh, deeply. Well let's, <laughs> well, let's hear you expound a little bit then on your book. Okay, so this idea that art is a form of crime goes way back, goes back to, I guess, the late 18th century with the birth of romantic art and particular things like Gothic literature. I think that essentially that innovation or that the birth of that idea that art was a crime was actually was more of a discovery of what was going on in artistic creation more than just a new arbitrary interpretation of what art could be. And the reason I think that is because the aesthetic by nature is, is amoral. And this is something you can find even in myths, that the minute you step into the aesthetic plane, that very evil things can become beautiful. This is something we've discussed. And in order to create a work of art, whether you're painting on a cave wall or you know designing a new VR experience, if it's going to be a work of art, its power is 100% aesthetic, meaning that its power works at the level not of concepts, but of affects, of deep sensibility. So to access that, you need to suspend the law, both in its literal sense and in its figurative sense of the, the, like the law in Kafka, right? The, the, the way things go, the way, the, what, the way one lives in this world, you know, that whole idea of custom and convention needs to be suspended so that you can do the work of creating an aesthetic object. Yeah. So by nature, 
the work of art incorporates forces that transcend or escape or exceed the frameworks of, con of moral convention. So it's just ontologically part of the process, I would argue, for reasons that we won't get into there. But, but the upshot is that art is always, in order to, to make sense, it needs to fit into the paradigm in which it's produced. It needs to be coherent, but it has tendrils that reach out outside of that paradigm because it's, it's reframing objects that are known in light of that unknown plane on which things escape or exceed the conventional framework of the day. So that's why in the book I say that uh, works of art are machines for destroying ideology. They are, by their nature, revelations by which the objects, ideas, and concepts that are normally ensconced within an ideology are shown to be much more alien than they appear. They're shown in their original alienness. They're shown to be things in themselves that reach out into the world. I think that uh, if you can accept the argument that the aesthetic is by nature amoral, then you can understand how art is by nature criminal. Mm. Yeah, you know, one way that I might take that idea and make it a lot more concrete or not 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 to say just simplify it or uh, uh, vulgarize it a little bit is the idea of okay so an artist has to become a criminal well what does that mean to become a criminal it's not just about learning the techniques of burglary for example of housebreaking although that clearly is part of it a lot of it is just getting yourself into a mindset where you're capable of doing that at all. Exactly. So, yeah. so what's the mindset within which you can do a crime in a professional way, to a professional standard, not talking about crimes of passion, which have no context except a very immediate emotional context, right? right? Uh, what, what is that cold-blooded process of stealing yourself, nerving yourself to become a criminal? Well, I've always lived a irreproachably bourgeois life, so I have no particular personal experience with criminality. But it seems to me that it could lie somewhere along an axis between actively willing yourself to do evil, except that would be difficult, right? Because to some extent, whenever somebody is doing something that we would call evil, usually they're trying to do something because they think it's actually good. You yes. Think about an unquestionably evil action like, you know, the genocide of European Jewry by the Nazis. The Nazis weren't doing it merely to exult in evil, although I'm sure there were many who derived a thrill from doing unspeakable things to fellow human beings. But the, as a policy, it was motivated by an idea that was accepted by the Nazis as a good, which is to say the creation of an ethnically homogenous state. And so you end up getting caught in these sort of double binds. Well, okay, I'm going to do evil, but on some level you're simply moving the terms of good and evil around so that you're saying, in effect, evil be thou my good. But if you want to avoid all of that stuff, then the axis would run from that to something much milder, which would be 
simply not giving a shit about what the moral valuation would be on your action and disappearing wholeheartedly into the action itself. Right. An action that becomes free simply because there's no prior moral judgment of any kind, pro or contra, being uh, appended to it. That's exactly it. And, it's, and it seems to me that that is a mind state of play that you have to get in to create anything, where there's nothing that has a claim on you. And from that position of equanimity, and that's a position that, just as I was saying a moment ago, like what if there was a novel that could put you in a drug wavelength in such a way that you didn't even need to take the drug, perhaps a fanciful notion. But art is a sort of thing that puts you in a mindset of criminality without actually turning you into a criminal. All these parents who are happily seeing their kids troop off to the Jacobs School of Music and study violin or whatever, I'm sure would be horrified to realize that we are training them to a life of criminality. But that's exactly what we're doing if we're doing our job. The fact of the matter is, though, that very few schools ever really do their job because very seldom do we ever say at the end of the day, nothing is true, everything is permitted. Very seldom do we say, as uh, Claude Debussy said to one of his teachers, that pleasure is the law. You know, the dictates of my own imagination uh, are the only things that count here. But it's nevertheless the case. It's just sort of like to do art fearlessly, even if the art you make is has impeccable manners, is polished and neoclassical as it gets, in order to create that polished, cool, calm music or art of equanimity, you have to dwell in a zone of play that is completely unbounded and amoral. And that is something I think that it's harder and harder to find places where people are going to encourage that and harder and harder to find places where that art created under the aegis of that kind of freedom is valued or supported in any way. And yet, and yet I feel that the impulse to create art in that real way, in that spirit of true play, is inextinguishable. It will always come out, and it will always be beaten back down by, well, pretty much everybody who isn't an artist, because it's pretty, it's pretty hard to explain this mindset to people who don't create. Yeah. And so it seems to me that, you know, getting back to Burroughs, I've always been a little bit skeptical of ideas of counterculture, because, you know, I wrote a book on the history of counterculture, and something that certainly suggested itself to me is that there are actually really strong connections between countercultural idea and, uh, and capitalism. You know, the idea that, oh, like, only the squares and normies like that shit music, you need to announce your special uniqueness, your distinction from the herd by buying this other record and the cool T-shirt and a cool haircut to go yeah, with Yeah, well, that's it. not counterculture. That's just culture. You know, like, yeah. in a sense, the notion of counter- Yeah, but, you know, but but then there's sort of like, yeah, but I'm talking about the uncoopted counterculture. And I suspect that countercultures are always already co-opted by that fundamentally capitalistic thing. But, except for one thing, which is it seems to me art is a permanent counterculture. Because what art is asking for is always, by definition, 
always going to be outside the pale of whatever society you find yourself in, whether it's the modern American society or Russian or Soviet society in the 1950s, New York in the 50s, Interzone in the 50s, you name it, art will always be a crime. And the people who understand that aspect of it will always be on the outside. They will always be part of a counterculture. It's a counterculture that isn't distinguished by funny haircuts and band t-shirts and shit like that. It is distinguished by this freedom that you have to simply claim for yourself. No one's going to give it to you. Well, it's not a tribe. It's not a tribe. Like, no counterculture is a tribe. It is not a tribe. It's a constellation of singularities. Uh, that's you can't have a counterculture. You can have constellations. For example, Ginsburg, Kerouac, and Burroughs formed a constellation. They all n- deny that they were part of this movement. You know, they yeah. were they were each doing their thing. They happened to know one another. Uh, it's a coincidence. And art always occurs at the level of the individual, and it can only exist at the level in- of the level of the individual. That's why the very notion of counterculture was in itself always already an appropriation of art and, and, a, and, yeah. a, and a, yeah. a co-opting of the artistic process for a group. But no group can lay claim to art because yes. art has to do, as Cronenberg as says, you know, he says um, in one part, he says, when we collaborate, is there truly an ecstatic dissolution of the self into a perfect fluid composed of many selves? You are not writing poetry in your garret in Paris alone, destitute and starving. Or are you? I suggest that you are somewhere in there, that poet in that garret, alone, destitute, and yes, despite the commissions, starving, philosophically and emotionally, if not viscerally. Art has to do with your realization of your own absolute aloneness before the mystery of being. That's what Mm. art is. Art is a response to that. That can't happen in a group. That's what destroys groups. But then, of course, because you have to use conventions in order to make the art, you have to use a language that pre-exists to you, you have to use paints that were made somewhere, you have to use techniques that were taught to you, then you create an artifact that can be subsumed in a culture. But that thing that makes that one work, art, is exactly what escapes and transcends and exceeds that cultural idiom. That's always what makes that a work of art, art which is why we can't really talk about art. Art is just a name we give to unclassifiables, right? And it, yeah. it, it's actually hidden in, the, in, the, in our conventional notions of art, the idea of a classic. Why do we call it a classic? Because it creates its own class. In the Aristotelian yeah. sense, it doesn't belong in a class. It is in itself a class. So the, the true work of art is always singular. And it's the effort of civilization to incorporate, digest, and deploy and, and appropriate art that creates this idea of traditions and conventions and cultures. I strongly believe that. I, I think it's even present in a, a tradition as ancient and as coded as, for example, icon creation in the Orthodox Church. Because the whole point, they always make the icons the same way, right? The idea is always to reproduce the original face of Christ. So there's only one way to make them. But what makes the icons magical is the tiny differences that come up despite the artist's effort to reproduce. It's the one little thing that makes it different that gives it all the magic. That's what art's about. It's about um, the new coming up. And the new always occurs, as as we've said many, many times, as a singularity, as the uncodable, right? 
Yeah, you know, there, there's a uh, wonderful documentary on improvisation by a guy named Derek Bailey, who is a free improvisation guitarist. And there's interviews with a lot of different musicians. And one of them is Buddy Guy, the great Chicago blues guitarist. And he makes a fairly simple point that nevertheless really hit me between the eyes. He's like, you know, you can't play the same thing twice, even if you try, no matter how hard you try. Right. You can play note for note, but it will be different every time. And the point he was making is that we're like, improvisation exists whether or not you acknowledge it or whether or not you notice it because time exists. Like you can't play the same piece of music twice the same way because each time it's taking place in a different time, different contingencies come up. You respond to them. Even if you're playing a fully composed work of music and you're playing it note for note, your like you know your index finger will strike a certain pitch of the melody in a certain way and then all the subsequent notes in that melody will be slightly adapted to retrospectively make sense of the way you played that one pitch with your index finger right and you are constantly adjusting to things you may not notice it I mean, I think there's actually a lot of musicians, classical musicians, who take pride in the idea that they can play the same piece and it sounds the same every time, that they're really, really uh, reliable. I have known musicians who are like that. They tend to be very boring because they're actively courting boredom. They're really trying to find something. Uh, they're, they're trying to get art to a state that it doesn't naturally want to go to, which is a state of pure replication right. or reproduction. But the very fact that you can't ever play a piece of music the same way twice, even if you record it and play it twice, the person listening to it isn't going to be the same person. Right. You know, like... The acoustics is, of the it, room. There's all kinds of yeah, things. It's yeah, it's radically true that yeah. every artistic utterance is a singularity. It will always have the element of contingency that is introduced by virtue of it manifesting in space and time. Exactly. And and in a sense, in a sense, art is um, a process by which humans come to know that every moment yeah. is like that. Oh, yeah, the yeah. time itself is an act of creation. It's like it's reminding you of the uniqueness of each moment. And that's why it's essential. But that's why it's fundamentally criminal. Because civilization is always predicated on the idea that once things are identified, they are known. But art is always predicated on the idea that nothing is known. You didn't know what the fuck a sunflower was till, till Van Gogh painted one. And then yeah. once you've seen a Van Gogh painting of a sunflower, you certainly don't know what sunflowers are. In fact, you're seeing the sunflowers as something unknowable. That's the whole point, right? Mm. Um, uh, what is a person? Like, what is Ahab and Moby Dick? Is he a, a, a discrete individual with wishes and a history and desires? No, he's a fucking force of nature. Like, art is a dissolution of boundaries between things. Or it's, it's a revelation of greater units that individuals form part of. Like, Ahab and the whale are, in a sense, kind of one thing. Art is a challenge to our ready-made ideas about how the world works and what the world is. That's why in Reclaiming Art, I make the argument that, I don't know if I argue it very much, but I make the claim that art by nature returns us to radical mystery. It is the process by which we are reacquainted with our fundamental, I won't say ignorance, but our, our, our fundamental incapacity to know what life is or what it's about. And 
in that sense, it's it's a cleansing process. But that is, in a civilizational sense, this is by nature criminal because yeah. it's a negation of the absolute status of moral judgment. One pretty simple way of boiling down what I was saying a while ago about the necessity of there being no prior restraint for the creation of art is put very well by George Orwell in a uh, an essay called Inside the Whale. And I used this quote in an essay I wrote about how basically the title of the essay gives you the point of the essay, which is good prose is written by people who are not frightened. And that title is adapted from this thing that um, Orwell writes, which I'm going to quote. From 1933 onwards, the mental climate was increasingly against it. And when he says against it, he means free thinking. Anyone sensitive enough to be touched by the zeitgeist was also involved in politics. Not everyone, of course, was definitely in the political racket, but practically everyone was on its periphery and more or less mixed up in propaganda campaigns and squalid controversies. Communists and near-communists had a disproportionately large influence in the literary reviews. It was a time of labels, slogans, and evasions. At the worst moments, you were expected to lock yourself up in a constipating cage of lies. At the best, a sort of voluntary censorship. Ought I to say this? Is it pro-fascist? Etc. Was at work in nearly everyone's mind. It is almost inconceivable that good novels should be written in such an atmosphere. Good novels are not written by orthodoxy sniffers, nor by people who are conscience-stricken about their own unorthodoxy. Good novels are written by people who are not frightened. Right. And I, to me, that paragraph sounds as a clarion call and also an indictment of my own pusillanimity. <laughs> but because it is, I think, in this day and age, and this is what I write in this essay, it is extraordinarily difficult living in the United States, and perhaps true in Canada as well, I don't know, it is extraordinarily difficult to write anything without your mind being invaded by a thousand and one voices telling you, well, what would people say about that? Could that be taken to be pro-Trump? Could that be taken to be anti-Trump? Could that be taken to be this, that, or the third? You're constantly, as Orwell puts it, locking yourself up in a constipating little cage of lies where you're trying to trim the sails of your own conscience to the winds of whatever political positions are being held by everybody around you. Or, as is just as often the case, perhaps more so, trimming your sails uh, to avoid the wind of your opponents. As a friend of mine says something quite true about Donald Trump, that he corrupts everything he touches, including his critics. And yeah. and it's something I write in this essay that some, not all by all means, but there is um, an authoritarian strain of anti-Trumpism just as much as there's an authoritarian strain of Trumpism. And both of these sides rigorously policing what may be said and unpredictably cracking down on those who unwittingly offend against whatever moral dispensation we've decided for today we're going to uh, we're going to adopt it's a really bad time right now to try to think freely oh, it, it absolutely is to try and create freely
consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also find us on Twitter. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening. Thank you.